Howdy, folks. Welcome to Season 2 of CC Life Science. And boy, is there a lot to talk about as AI, particularly ChatGPT, in case you missed it, and what that means for all of us is on everyone's mind. I'll definitely be exploring that this year, along with other applications of AI in the life science from discovery to the clinic. And of course, whatever else gets me curious. Data is at the core of everything we do, but the labels we put on data don't always mean the same thing everywhere, which is a challenge for collaboration, among other things, which is what we're talking about today. So without further ado, let's jump right into this episode. Okay, my guest today is Mark Fortner. He is the founder and CEO of Aspen Biosciences. And we're going to talk a little bit about how interdisciplinary teams share data and information. So, Mark, welcome to CC Life Science. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. So, um, we're going to talk about FAIR data, which is an acronym. I'm going to let you go through that and what each of those things stands for. And then kind of describe what this system, the concept behind this system that allows or hopefully will allow people from different organizations to look at sets of data and be able to understand, you know, sort of what that data is about. It's a, is it fair to say it's a system of metadata, but more organized than what you might get otherwise? <laughs> Yeah, um, I think metadata is probably the easiest thing for people to um, to think through. But um, what FAIR data is all about is basically making the communication between different parties in a collaboration easier and more transparent. And to basically put into place a common vocabulary um, that each party can use. Um, this uh, the concept of shared data kind of came from academia, where you typically have these interdisciplinary groups. Um, you might have physicists and uh, mathematicians and biologists and um, chemists all working uh, together collaboratively on a project. And the challenge is when um, different parties in that collaboration use the same terms but with different connotations, um, different um, connotations that are specific to their discipline. Um, and so it can get a little confusing when you're talking about those things. And I think that's where the metadata portion of FAIR uh, data comes into play. It's um, designed specifically to try to address that particular problem. Yeah, so let's talk about, um, let's go through these briefly and what they are, and then we'll talk more broadly about, you know, how it's used and why it's important and who should care about it mostly, right? Right. So um, FAIR is an acronym, as you mentioned earlier, and it stands for uh, Findable, Accessible, Interoperable, and Reusable. And the goal behind this is basically to set down some principles for how data should be used and shared between um, different groups. And what are the qualities of that data and metadata that make that shareability possible? Um, and so that's basically what those principles are designed to try to address. Right. So if I... 
I'm happy to go into it in a little more detail, but maybe I can just summarize. So, uh, you know, findable, and and this is all from you. I'm just going to be transparent to the audience. Yeah. <laughs> you gave me the answer sheet, but you know, data should have a unique, persistent address so people can find it. It's well described. It needs to be accessible, which means uh, not only can I find it, but I can take it and do something with it. Interoperable means whatever, however you were using it, I can put it on my systems and use it with that common vocabulary, and it means the same thing. And then reusable, um, we sort of know where it came from, the provenance, who generated it, and, and so on. So right. what so, did I leave out? Because I'm sure I did. I missed something. No, I mean, you've covered, um, you've covered all the points. I think the main thing to try to understand is that the FAIR principles are basically a – uh, designed to address a laundry list of problems that you uh, that academics see on a daily basis, and uh, because so many of um, the companies involved in pharmaceutical collaborations um, are also beginning to um, see the same types of problems, they're looking for the same types of solutions that academics have have had access to for a while. Um, and so if we take them one at a time and talk about, you know, each of the principles, um, when we say something is findable, it has to have a, a unique persistent address, right? So currently, if you want to find, uh, if you want to find, uh, let's say the data on a gene called NTREC1, um, you would just, um, simply type that into Google and it would find you information on NTREC1. It used to be beforehand that you didn't have that capability. If you wanted to find that information, you'd have to go to Entree Gene um, or Unigene to go look up this information. Um, uh, if the same thing holds true for proteins, you'd have to go to Uniprot and go look it up. Um, so they weren't sort of universally accessible. You had to know what databases to go search through in order to find them. But now we don't have that. We have more permanent URLs that are easy to, to find and to use. Um, and these URLs can be um, indexed by uh, machines like Google's indexing services. Um, so they can index uh, databases like Gene, pull the information out of it, and make it easily findable by anybody who's interested in it. Um, and in order to be able to do that, that data has to be well described. I mean, there has to be a metadata vocabulary that tells what this data is that I'm looking at. Um, and then the endpoint itself has to be registered so that it can be found, right? Um, and so that it can be indexed by machines. Um, so that's basically where findability comes into the into play. Um, in order for something to be accessible, um, the data and the metadata um, have to be retrievable by that unique address that we talked about. Um, and um, it has to be findable even when the data no longer exists. So one of the problems that you typically see um, in a lot of cases um, in the academic world is that the data may only persist for as long as that lab is, um, is in business or um, as long as that paper um, is viable and maybe a couple of years later or until that particular grad student graduated. 
and then it's no longer available. And so they needed to have a way, if they couldn't persist the data itself, that they could persist the metadata about it. Um, so the, those basic conclusions maybe that were drawn from that data, um, they would want to make persistible. Um, and then in terms of um, making things interoperable, here um, we have sort of a, a, a clear problem that I think anybody can, can um, take on board. And that's basically when you and I are talking about um, a specific term, um, we have to be able to know unambiguously that we're talking about the same thing and not two different things. And that is a common problem that you see across um, academic circles, but you also see it in um, small biotech companies and large pharmaceutical companies. Um, again, people are coming from different disciplines and they bring their own um, jargon with them. And sometimes that jargon overlaps and it means different things. Um, and so um, it's really important that um, we understand each other unambiguously um, when we're sharing um, data. Um, and then lastly, in terms of making things um, reusable, um, there's a, whenever we look at data, we have to understand where did this data come from? How is it generated? Um, what types of materials were used to actually um, in uh, a particular experiment in order to generate that data. Um, there's a whole host of questions that you have about that um, because um, as you know, every scientist um, does their work, they're basically standing on the shoulders of other scientists. And you have to know that um, those shoulders that you're standing on are really solid. You have to know that the conclusions that you're basing your decisions on are solid. Um, in the case of um, the pharmaceutical industry, people are making multi-million dollar decisions based on this information. And so if they don't understand it or they don't feel comfortable with their understanding of that um, data, then that can be a real problem for them. Yeah, that's, I mean, that right there is a huge opportunity. I was just reading an article on Substack this morning, you know, about the challenge of replicating experiments, not because they're wrong, but just even with good instructions <laughs> and, and complete instructions about how something was done, it's it's difficult for someone to come up yeah. sometimes with the same answer. Yeah, uh, they had a alone. paper, uh, I think this was about seven years or so ago, it was actually a slew of papers that came out. And uh, they tried to replicate the uh, results from the top 10 most frequently cited um, oncology-related papers. And nine, the, day, the results from 9 out of 10 of those papers could not be reproduced. And um, at that time, that brought up a whole series of questions. You know, are, are we not capturing the protocol properly? How is it that you know, I can end up with a different set of results than you can if I'm, you know, following exactly the, the protocol that you specified, um, you know. So this is where this metadata uh, is so important. We have to understand where did this data come from? How did we generate these results? Um, you know, we have to be able to make sure in industry that um, if you do this experiment 10 times, you end up with the same result every time. Um, it's not... Uh, a matter of, you know, I 
this experiment fails six times and it succeeds on the seventh, and I write it up and and I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that just doesn't work in academia or it doesn't work in in industry. Yeah, so I understand all those concepts, but I'm going to go back to the findable thing. When you say a unique URL, particularly around a gene or a protein, and you can search it with Google, because as soon as you say Google, I'm thinking I'm going to get a long list of information about that gene. So tell me a little bit more about having a piece of data having a unique persistent address. Okay. So, um, you know, if we take a look at Entree Gene, for example, it has a unique URL that um, points me directly to uh, the information on NTREC1, that gene I was talking about earlier. Um, and it's the same thing with Uniprot. That has a unique URL format that will always get me to the information on, um, on that particular protein. Um, and so... This is really important because um, those persistent, permanent URLs, we want to be able to bookmark them. Uh, we want to be able to write about them. We don't want the URL format to shift, and suddenly we end up with dead links that don't go anywhere. Um, this is really important if you are um, an indexing service um, like Google's indexing service and you're going through a paper and you're finding these references that point to places that no longer exist, right? Those, those URLs need to go somewhere in order for Google to be able to, to traverse that link and go index that other, uh, the endpoint that that link points to. Got it. Okay, so some of that sounds like an advancement since I left the lab many years ago, so... <laughs> But I can understand there. you have a URL, it points to a page, there's information on that page, presumably in sort of a standard format about gene name, maybe length, how it was sequenced, any other thing you can imagine that's pretty standard. And the URL has a format like you would have a naming system for files if you were really on top of things in your computer, like... Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, that URL format is really important, and it's really important that it stays the same over the years. Um, and we've seen cases in the past where that hasn't been the case. And because of that, um, we can't find that data anymore. So if I'm going to put – I'm now I'm curious about the logistics of getting things in and out. If I'm going to put something in that database, then is it guiding me? in some way to to demand that I put data in in the right way? So um, that's, that's where things get a little bit more interesting. Uh, <laughs> um, so if I put it into a database like, um, like Entree Gene or, or like Uniprode, um, the data is going to go in in a specific way, in a specific format. Um, the data is very well described. Um, so we know, for example, um, if you see a field that says um, uh, protein ID, for example, then we know that that means the uniprot ID and not uh, the genpept ID or some other you know, protein database ID. So that's really important. Um, 
each of these types of fields have are very well defined, and so it makes it very simple to be able to enter in that information in a consistent fashion. Now, one of the things that uh, the uh, the people behind the fair movement um, decided to do was to make sure that everything that was part of the fair movement um, had a, a standard behind it, a well-defined and accepted standard. And they wanted to build on existing standards. They didn't want to have to create new standards to support this. So just as HTML is a standard for representing um, text and images and so forth in a, in a page, um, they um, were using uh, formats uh, for data that were well represented. And so these are um, semantic web formats uh, like OWL and RDF. And these are formats that are used to represent any kind of data. Um, so typically when we create a database, a relational database, that relational database has a, a fixed set of fields in it. Uh, and you as the database developer, you have to specify what those fields are. Well, that gets a little bit more difficult if you've got 20 people collaborating, right? And so what they did was they created um, what's called an ontology, which is a way of representing all metadata about a particular field. And this ontology then is used to um, represent the data that you see in a page, for example. Um, so you can describe the fields that are in that page. Nice. I think these are, I mean, we're talking about the same thing. Interestingly, since that's sort of metadata and making sure we are talking about the common vocabulary. But I recently did an episode with Seth Early. It was all about ontologies mm -hmm. and building those out for companies. So let's get into the nitty gritty of, you know, how you use this and why it's important. For example, if I'm a biotech company and I've got some data on a molecule or a therapy I'm working on and you are a large pharma company and you're going to give me a lot of money to take that thing forward <laughs> and I hand over a packet of data to you, you need to be able to evaluate it, of course, but also replicate it, as we said, um, sort of talk about that scenario and you know the value of that to both parties and then we'll talk about like how do who goes first like okay yeah so this is a really common problem in the drug discovery um, industry um, and basically um, you know a lot oftentimes large pharmaceutical companies will partner with small biotech companies and the projects that they're partnering on are for really novel types of therapies, right? So the, the therapy that you came up with is in a, let's say it's in a, a therapeutic class that has never been seen before, right? And so as a pharmaceutical company, looking at that, um, I go, this sounds promising. Now we just need to verify that it is promising, right? And so um, I'm... In my case, I'm going to be uh, playing the devil's advocate and I'm going to be putting on my FDA hat and I'm going to be looking at this data saying, is this going to pass the FDA's um, criteria or do I need to uh, get present more data to them in order to get this um, through? And so when I look at it, my level of skepticism about this is going to be, you know, what does this data represent? 
How did you come up with it? Um, what were the materials used? I'm basically trying to figure out how many holes can I poke in this thing? Um, you know, can I really be confident about the decision that I'm about to make um, to put down several million dollars to help advance this program? Um, you know, do I have confidence in everything I'm seeing? And so that's my view as the, as the um, pharmaceutical partner in this. As the biotech um, company in this partnership, you're looking at it as how much information do I need to provide this guy in order to give him the confidence that he needs? Um, am I going to have to redo these assays you know, five, ten times in order for him to understand um, this data, for him to understand the performance envelope of the assay that I'm running. Um, you know, if, if I need to do that, that means that it's going to be a lot more expensive for me than I had originally planned, right? And so what we're trying to do is to figure out what is that, um, that healthy uh, balancing point where I'm providing you with enough information and um, you feel confident in what you're seeing, um, but I'm not, you know, overspending in an effort to do that. Right. You're minimizing the risk for both parties. The pharma company is at risk of spending money on something that <clears throat> the sort of the assumption here is this is not their expertise, whatever has been done up to this point. It's a new, as you said, novel thing for them. And the biotech company doesn't want to spend a lot of time having to educate them on, as you say, the performance envelope of this assay. So having that common language and things that people can easily understand and <clears throat> makes both sides feel better and probably move right. ahead a little faster. Exactly. So who's the real beneficiary and how do we get both of these organizations started down this path to make it easier? I guess I'm trying to sort of represent both sides here for anybody listening. Like what, what should each of them be doing to take advantage of this kind of data setup going forward to make whatever they're doing more profitable? Yeah. So, um, that's a that's still a, a real challenge, I think, in in this environment. Um, you know, um, ideally, um, it, the tools that would be available to um, every scientist would be fared by default, right? But that's not the case. Um, you know, a lot of times when we're exchanging data, you may send me an Excel spreadsheet. Um, Excel knows nothing about the ontologies behind the assay that I'm running. It doesn't know, you know, that this particular field contains an IC50. It doesn't even know what an IC50 is. Um, and so that's the, the challenge is that th these tools are ontology agnostic. They don't know anything about that. And so when I send this data to you, your, your natural re uh, reaction is, what is this? What am I looking at? Um, and that's the, that's the challenge. Um, we're starting to see tools become more fair. Um, we're starting to see um, specific um, uh, vendors come out with, uh, with fair uh, tools, but um, it's still early days for that. Um, most of the tools that, out, that are out there are not fair by default. 
And um, one of the things that we've done at Aspen is we've made sure that the, the pipeline application that we're um, releasing has um, this layer built into, into it that allows other applications to become fair so that the data and the metadata that are in them can be easily shared with other organizations. And so that's kind of our, our, you can think of it as sort of an icing on the cake. It allows all of these different applications to work well together and to share data and metadata in a fair way. So when you mentioned tools, we're jumping ahead a little bit to instrumentation, for example, used in the assays or that are delivering data from an assay. I'm going to throw out a mass spec because that's the world I lived in. That would provide data in, if, if this is the right way to phrase it, a fair format. Right. So right now, I mean, since you come from the LCMS world, um, you know, the uh, there's a standard out there called Animal, I think, um, which is used, um, which is supported by some instrument manufacturers, but not all instrument manufacturers. Um, but it's designed to make the interchange of um of LCMS data easy um, so that I can take data from multiple different um, instruments provided by different vendors and different vintages of data. I can pull all of that together um, and use that in a comprehensive manner. So this is an example, again, of where you want to be able to use FAIR data to unify this information coming from different um, instruments. You mentioned Pipeline, which yeah. is a product of yours. Right. Tell me more about what that does. So um, Pipeline is an application um, that consists of multiple modules, and it's designed to unify the drug discovery process. And what it does is it makes it easier for scientists to manage, um, to plan and manage and execute the process of drug discovery. Um, so... Um, we built it from the um, get-go as a platform to manage integrations because we were doing a lot of integrations with different vendor systems. And we realized that um, there was a real need for that. Uh, people had a variety of different systems that they were comfortable with, and they needed to be able to integrate those together so that data just passed transparently through the system from point A to point B in their process. Um, and they needed the, um, the ease of use of a system that spanned their entire process, everything from target identification all the way through lead optimization. Um, they needed a way to keep all of the different parties in their uh, organization up to date um, so that as uh, an assay got completed, the notifications for that uh, would be sent back to the, the project lead and the, the requester that put in the, the request for the assay. Um, they needed to be able to keep track of um, the projects that were created, who was working on them, and what were they doing. They needed to keep track of the, the um, literature um, that, were, that were important to driving that project forward. Uh, so all of these modules basically contribute to um, the process of uh, planning and managing and executing these um, drug discovery projects. And presumably, I mean, it sounds like a, 
I don't know if this is the right phrase, forgive my ignorance on all of this, a wrapper for all those things they're doing <laughs> that the output of which presumably is all fair. Exactly. Um, I, that's a, a really good way of putting it. I think, um, you know, the, what pipeline does is it basically makes it easy for people to leverage the investments that they've already made in the tools that they already have and tools that are inherently unfair. Um, and it, uh, makes them all fair. It, um, basically levels up the entire field and makes it so that all these applications can work well together. Um, if you haven't made some of those investments, then you can use our default plugins for those. Um, if you have, then we just simply replace those plugins with whatever it is you want us to, to integrate into your system. Um, but it helps um, when you have this information available at your fingertips, you can make more um, intelligent decisions about um, the about the the project that you're working on so you can integrate in your your um, inventory management system into this and you can ask questions like if i want to run this assay um, when am i going to run out of reagent x needed in this assay um, how long uh, before i need to to reorder um, and when i do need to reorder um, can i just reorder through the application itself rather than having to go to two or three different websites and place my orders and stuff like that. You want to get it down to a button click so that they go, okay, here, I've got these three reagents that I'm missing. Click, 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 press order, and off we go. So we do that by integrating all of these systems together so that people can make better decisions and uh, can plan out the, the project that they're um, going to be working on. Excellent. And so let's wrap up with um, how do you see this practice spreading throughout life sciences? Um, so I, I think it's beginning to take off. We've um, seen um, uh, implementations, fair implementations from Takeda and Pfizer um, and I think we're starting to see adoptions um, across the board in other uh, pharmaceutical uh, companies as well. Um, again, they're, um, because of the size of these companies and the scale at which they operate, um, they're usually the ones that are sort of taking on the challenge of fair data first. Um, and then the biotech companies are um, sort of learning from the, um, the pharmaceutical partners that they work with as to what exactly is needed in order to take this project to the next step and what is needed to verify their data in order to take it to that next step. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, that the uh, people with a little bit more money to put it fairly, start to take this on, but the biotechs will start to see the value and honestly, I think a competitive advantage, right, to verifying their own data and being recognized as, oh, they're, you know, presumably at some level easier to work with because we know we're going to have, we're not going to be dealing with the challenges that we've been talking about. That, and that's a really good point. Um, I think that um, if I can say, as a small biotech company, if I can say, hey, I've got a data set that is fair, um, that has, that covers, you know, most of these assays that you're interested in, 
um, then exchanging data with you and getting you to examine that data and actually do something useful with it uh, becomes much easier. It's a much easier ask to do. And if you're a large pharmaceutical company, um, you know, it may be that 50% of your pipeline consists of these types of collaborations. And it's a lot of work to, uh, to do that. Um, you know, you can, these may be, you know, if you're Pfizer, it could be, you know, 50 to 100 um, projects that are like this. Um, and having to examine all of that data in all of those different formats that you're getting them in would be a very onerous task to do. Um, but if you can get the data in a consistent fashion and you can really understand that data, um, then it makes for a much easier task on my part. And I'm probably much more willing to engage with you because of that. Right. So, um, Mark, what have I missed? Is, is there anything that we haven't talked about that we that's important? So um, I think that um, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about the. Uh, spreading the practice throughout the the ecosystem there. Um, and I think we're starting to see that. Um, we're starting to see some tool vendors uh, begin to take that on. We're starting to see more pharmaceutical companies take that on. Um, and I think we're going to see more uh, adoption in the biotech um, arena um, as things progress. But I think we're still kind of in those early days um, in terms of adoption. Um, and I think the, the challenge that a lot of the smaller biotechs um, are um, up against is that it all takes time to do this, right? Um, and if my day job is basically churning out data, having to do this extra step may not be something that I'm willing to do unless there's some, there's some benefit uh, to me. And I think now we're beginning to realize um, in the biotech community that there is a benefit to doing it. Um, and I think it's, it, um, it's, that realization is gradually dawning on more and more uh, biotech companies. Excellent. Well, Mark Fortner, I will um, – well, first of all, thank you for all of that, education on fair data, and I will – um, put a link to your LinkedIn profile and as well as Aspen Biosciences in the show notes for this episode. Well, thanks very much, Chris. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. My pleasure. First of all, shout out to Mary Kennedy for connecting me with Mark. Thank you very much. I should have kept recording because after we stopped, Mark mentioned that fair data isn't just important for companies with a lot of money at risk. It's used by archaeologists and other scientists. Thinking about that made me realize that funding agencies have a stake in this. As they hand out grants, they want data to be persistent and findable as much as anyone. So they're not funding projects that have already been done or that the scientists they're funding can rely on data that has been generated before them. Apparently, European agencies are already on board with this idea. Mark also pointed out that as important as fair data is to people, it's at least as important to machines, as AI is employed for things like drug discovery. Humans can ask each other what a label on a column of data means, but machines can't do that, so it's important to be clear from the start, which is what this whole conversation is about. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues, and if there's someone I should interview who can educate 
all of us on a particular aspect of AI and life science, drop me an email, chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.